Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Matt, and welcome to Pod Wraiths, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. If this is your first time joining us, we're two friends watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine and sharing both our deep and irreverent thoughts on our favorite Star Trek series. This week, we're talking about Season 2, Episode 6, Melora, teleplay by a hundred million people, including Evan Carlos Summers and Stephen Baum and Michael Piller and James Crocker, and directed by Winrick Colby. This episode aired on October 31st, 1993. That's today. Happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween. This that not to date this podcast when it comes out in like three or four weeks whenever I've time that <laughs> we need to we need to like not do it on the same day that it is today so that we can like I can stop doing that <laughs> well, well and it's like it keeps happening because now the schedule that we've fallen into so it's it's kind of funny how how that that's been working out this yeah. week on Deep Space Nine Doctor Bashir ends up falling in love with a new officer when he develops a way for her to function in a high gravity environment meanwhile. Quark receives a death threat from one of his former associates. This week, we have friends of the pod and former guests, Lazie and Tessa, joining us. Welcome, Lazie and Tessa. Hello. Greetings. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> I guess that's literally what the notes say? is. Just yeah. say hi. Just um, say hi. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah no, that's, 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 that's fair. <laughs> I fair. We, we do didn't... a whole skit about aging. I played that part really well. (laughs) Followed instructions. I don't know what else you want us to do. No, that's that's that was one hundred percent accurate. That's a hundred percent accurate. Well, we're we're both excited not to. Well, I won't speak for Elise. I'm excited to have you both on back on the podcast and especially together. Um, I guess we'll start with with you, Lazi. Why did you pick this episode to uh, make your return appearance to Pod Race on? Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm trying to question why I'm choosing some of these episodes <laughs> other than they're like quite Julian-heavy episodes. So I remembered this being a particularly, uh, I think one of the early examples of a, a Julian uh, having a relationship with a patient, basically. <laughs> uh, something that shows up a couple of later times. Uh, but, but fundamentally, I think I just wanted to pick it to talk about Julian, to be honest. <laughs> I That's, mean, there could be worse reasons. Right? Right? There really could. And hey, at least on this episode, Julian got, to, or Alexander Siddig got to play Bashir the whole time and wasn't, you know, someone else in Bashir's body with a, a Bella Lugosi like accent. And then, <laughs> and then Tessa, we actually originally we just had it had it booked for Lazi as a guest, but then when Elise and I were watching the the episode earlier, Elise had the idea of you know asking you to be on this episode as well. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about your background and why why Elise to asked you to uh, appear on th- on this week's show. This is like when they're like, what's your dissertation about? And you have to answer it in like three sentences. And it's Sorry. like, like cold sweat starts like breaking. <laughs> I no, actually, it's not that bad at all. So I am currently, I've been working in disability studies, disability justice for three to four years now. What is time anymore? But I, <laughs> who knows? Yeah. So this is actually really near and 
dear to my heart, disability representation and disability in pop culture. I've been writing about it for my dissertation, especially in the realm of speculative fiction and science fiction fantasy. So this is definitely something that is right up my alley. And I have definitely talked Elise's ear off about it, which is probably why she made the association (laughs) with me while you were watching this. So yeah, that is sort of my background. I will try not to get too like scholarly with everybody on this podcast, but that is... I don't think we will mind if you are scholarly. (laughs) But yeah, that is my connection to this. So I I actually just watched this episode last night and immediately was like, oh yeah, okay. I know why I'm here. I know why she's here. Awesome. is far far more serious and far more qualified to talk about it. Whereas uh, I don't think my master's in chemistry quite cuts it. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe um, you could have helped with the compound that Julian needed to do the treatments or something like that. I was gonna say, I know nothing about the science of like this cure that he yeah. is touting by the end of the episode. So maybe you could explain that to us. Good. Yeah, okay. Let's put that on. <laughs> Not to put you on the spot. Um, Lazi, I wanted to mention because last time we spoke when you were on, we specifically were talking about how funny it is that we always think of Julian and Miles together. And this is another Julian episode where Miles is not really involved in it much at all, especially not like they haven't really become friends yet still. No, and Miles is still extraordinarily grumpy in in the two (laughs) interactions he has with the plot. He starts the episode grumpy He's grumpy in the middle of it because Julian comes up with a cure for something. And <laughs> that's his whole contribution to the whole thing. Uh, I love yeah, that. Yeah, so. I agree. It's, 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 it is strange. And I would say the same thing about Dax as well, that we still don't have the, the fundamentals of our characters uh, in place, even sort of a little bit into season two. That I think we know Cisco. I think we know... Quark and Odo, actually. Yeah. I think we know Kira pretty well. Yeah. But I don't think we know Dax. I don't think we know Miles. And I don't think we know Julian yet. We start to a little bit in this episode. Yeah, I, I, I think that, that that's totally fair. And there's something that we kind of talked about over the course of the, the first season and when you're kind of looking into a lot of the quotes around production and stuff, that like Quark and Odo especially got a lot in season one because I think they were fairly not that they're simple characters but we're easier to nail down in terms of tone and everything else and then the kind of conflicting messages about who jadzia is and you know just having julian sketched out as being wet behind the ears like you know sort of yeah excited guy yeah i suspect it's the the confidence and seniority of the actors as well to be honest yeah i think totally you just got the the elder not the elder statesman that sounds horrible but like the more experienced actors, I think, come to the come to the ownership of their characters much more quickly than than Siddiq does, than Terry does, even to an extent that Nana does. Yeah, no, right. that's that's fair. But Colmini's just grumpy, so there you go. You <laughs> I think he becomes more Scotty like with every passing episode. Like I could definitely see that. He's definitely channeling some Scotty in this episode where he's like, I can't just make stuff happen. You know, it has to it has to have a 
a basis in reality. <laughs> right. I can't That's remember fun. which one of your episodes it was, but there was definitely one episode where he's basically just spends his whole time complaining about Cardassian technology. And it's just the through line of like Miles, Miles' relationship with the station. But okay, we're now going well off topic of something that doesn't happen <laughs> in this episode. But Miles' relationship with no, his, I the think that does happen. In a, yeah, that we can does bring it back around. Yeah, there, yeah, because I he got, does complain about the architecture of like yeah. the station and how it's not accessible. I so. really got some very heavy blame the last administration vibes from um, O'Brien in this with regard to the lack of ramps. Um, and Bejor and the Federation have been in charge of the station for a year, but I guess making the station ADA compliant or whatever the 24th uh, century version of that was not a priority. So they're having to like scramble to do all of this now. Well, and like that's, interesting in and of its, its itself too like as a concept and, it, and it, i think it would really kind of align with what i would think is kind of a lot of you know modern or contemporary examples of inclusion and adaptation like in design and things like that where it tends to be the oh we have a new employee coming that, you know, has different accessibility needs. So we're going to then retroactive this environment to, to fit the person. And like, that's great, but real, like, I don't know if I'm using the the right term. So I'll, I'll look to the academic on the podcast, but like universal <laughs> design or like accessible design, is that like the, the right, right nomenclature? Yes. Right. You're absolutely right. So like having that kind of universal design from, from the start is I think the paradigm shift that like, we would need to work through as a society. Whereas like, it just feels very like real to a fault that it's like, Oh, we have this officer coming and now we're like, you know, being all good and patting ourselves on the back. Cause we did all this to the, like, you know, the gravity plates and, you know, just to make those accommodations when really it's like, it should be kind of have, have built in from the start. I guess then I'll, I'll throw to you, you first, then Elise, what were your like initial thoughts of this episode? So we'll go Elise, well, Tessa, and then Lazi. <laughs> So since we are, since this is something that I usually say on the episode, this is an this is an episode that I actually remembered, and it's not just because Ryan Atwood's mother from the OC, actor Daphne Ashbrook, plays Melora. <laughs> um, I didn't remember like every sing- single thing that happened, but I definitely remembered um, this. I mean, it's pretty obvious that. Melora's species needing um, a lower gravity to move around is an allegory for someone with a disability. And I have very uncomfortable thoughts, even though they might have been a cute couple, um, some icky thoughts about the doctor-patient romance, mm-hmm. um, especially since Julian had studied her files for so long. And there's something, it's like, kind of i don't know it, it gave me like a googling someone before your date vibe which i mean i know people do that but like i don't know it also there were like a couple things and this is more just like about the specific intro like he made some like presumptuous moves to like change to modify her chair from what she said she needed and that i didn't sit right with me um you know someone who lives with a certain um disability knows what they need and to like i understand he was trying to help her but it just felt like any changes to that should have been discussed 
But yeah. Tessa? So I have a really hard time actually saying that this is an allegory for disability because she's literally in a wheelchair. Like that's fair. She like, I mean, no, I think we're supposed to think this is an allegory for disability because she's like a different species. And like, so it is a fantastical disability in that way. Like this is not like a real disease or a real, right. You know, disorder or something like that. I just like, she's in a wheelchair and I, (laughs) I mean, I'm trying to like pace myself here on things I say about <laughs> this particular episode. I do. I did look up. So the actress who plays Melora Daphne Ashbrook is not disabled, at least not when she made this episode. And so we can get into like the issues of representation there. Like should someone who's not disabled play somebody who's disabled, especially because it is like she re- literally is in a wheelchair. Right. But I guess my initial thought in this is that this is like very 1993 episode Mm -hmm. about disability. And I do appreciate that Evan Carlos Summers, who is one of the writers, one of the four, four writers. Yes. Four writers on this Mm -hmm. was a disabled person. He died, I think a couple of years ago, he was quadriplegic. Mm. And so you do get like that aspect of it that you have a disabled writer actually writing about disability, which is great. We need more of that. But there are still a lot of limitations in this episode for what they can do. And part of that is because she is a guest character. She is a guest star. There are apparently literally no other disabled people in the Federation, (laughs) which I mean, they try to make very clear from the beginning when Julian pulls out this wheelchair that he's fabricated and Dax is like I've only seen one of these in history books <laughs> and so here you know curing disability becomes intertwined with utopia right if the federation is a utopia then and we don't have disability it means that we've come across all of these cures for all of these yeah. disorders which is like a whole thing I will very very quickly quote Alison Kafer who says if disability is conceptualized as a terrible unending tragedy then any future that includes disability can only be a future to avoid a better future in other world words is one that excludes disability in disabled bodies indeed it is the very absence of disability that signals this better future like this idea that like oh well we've cured all these diseases and we've cured all these disabilities so we don't need things like wheelchairs anymore um so I, I I think there is actually surprisingly a good amount of nuance in this episode, um, which I'll talk about later. But it is the nuance that comes from the 90s where we haven't we're still not really talking to disabled people about what their experiences are like. And yeah. it's also. Anytime you have only one representation of a thing, it beca- it starts to bear the burden of representing all of that thing, right? So if you, sure. only have, if you only have one Black person represented in a series, that Black person starts to bear the representation of all Black mm-hmm. people, right? And so here mm-hmm. we get an example of one wheelchair user bearing the representation of all wheelchair users. Um, and so if you had more representations of disability, you would have more nuance in we just get this one like special of the week type of representation, which unfortunately causes some issues with representation in this particular story. And that's just, that's just so like 
very Star Trek to its core, like often more for worse than it is like for better in which it's like, like you like you mentioned, we're going to have this, you know, issues episode focused on a guest star that has, you know, some of this other like fantastical elements where it's alien. So it's safer to remove. And like, that's often a lens that science fiction can, can use to explore things. But uh, I just, I'm thinking this is a whole other podcast, but I'm thinking about the outcast from TNG now as being kind of, you know, another, another missed kind of allegory episode. Yeah. And defamiliarization, which is what you're talking about, where we take something that's real and like make it like put it into another issue. Like for example, the episode, Oh God, what is it called? Let this be your last battlefield in TOS. I'm saying this because I'm watching season three of TOS right now. (laughs) Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. Yeah. So (laughs) it's, it's a whole thing, but like the way in which the half black and half white and half white and half black is supposed to be like this allegory for racism, that's defamiliarization, right? We don't actually have people who are half black and half white, right? But the issue of racism has been defamiliarized in order for us to have conversations that we couldn't otherwise have, that wouldn't have necessarily the political charge. That can be really great unless you're using it in a way that, again, it's like, well, we did this for one week and uh, now we're back to normal. That can be the problem. I was actually just talking with my father about that episode before we were recording because we, I mean, spoiler alert, but I'm, I'm going to talk about that again in, in our most Star Trek segment, but like there it's in with TOS, at least there are very interesting reasons why they did do that kind of thing. And I'll get into it later, but it is kind of interesting that in the nineties, they were still doing that. It was the 90s. Sorry. I mean, they still our, do it our, in science yeah. fiction our favorite today, tic- So <laughs> Matt's invoking yeah. my favorite TikToker right now. <laughs> <laughs> and then I guess just picking up on that thread of like the idea of science fiction, a lens and defamiliarization. Um, we'll go to you, Lawrence. You, we were talking off pod before during kind of our, as we were doing planning and talking about kind of initial, initial thoughts and comparisons. What were your kind of initial thoughts of the episode and have you thought of any kind of current science fiction parallels? So, uh, so I a hundred percent agree that everything that Tessa says is what they're trying to do with the episode. My fundamental problem is it's insanity because (laughs) it's not a disability. It is perfect uh, behavior someone who was born on a on a planet of that gravity and in fact it is craziness to expect that you would have a consistent set of gravity across all of these different planets such that this would be such a unique experience and the particular comparison i make is to the expanse which doesn't well spoilers for later in the expanse (laughs) doesn't leave our solar system and has fundamental different human physiologies in response to living in lunar gravity, Martian gravity, and asteroid belt gravity, and then outer planets as well. And the reality is that all of these people, even as different as Mars and Earth in terms of gravity, would have fundamentally different responses to standard gravity. It's not, it's not a disability at all. It is shown to be in this, in this episode, that's how they portray it, but the, re- the science fiction realities are you would absolutely naturally come across all of these people with different gravities and that you would expect to have to have some sort of consistent way of, of dealing with that. Even if you got lucky enough to have Vulcan and Earth have 
similar gravities. Like it's crazy that it would be so rare that you would have to do all of these different things. So I think the expanse does it treats it in a fantastic way. It shows the goods and the bads of it. It shows how belters sort of are effectively adapted for low gravity in space and or much lower gravity in space. And it shows the bad of it. It shows Earthers torturing Martians effectively just by subjecting them to normal human gravity, normal human, sorry, normal Earth gravity. So um, I found that fascinating. I was just like, it, the the they make it a lot about the chair. They make it a lot about the, the support uh, structures that she goes to, but it would be hard for her to breathe. It would be hard for her to do almost anything because not because she's disabled, but because her her home planet, it, she is perfectly adapted for her home planet. And so, um, yeah, I just found it fascinating from that side. And I found it, it was, it's so basic as a way of treating that. And then uh, to rush through it, like here's an injection, you can walk in an hour. <laughs> I'm like, you know, they go through it again in the expense. So they talk about how um, a belter is trying to trying to meet her her partner's family who live on earth and basically can almost never do that because she would be crushed she she just wouldn't be able to move wouldn't be able to operate on it and that she can work really hard in the gym work really hard on her muscles and on her skeleton to help build this up but like lunar gravity is more likely to be a reasonable sort of halfway house meeting place and i know they sort of hand wave it about and say well She's got some adaptation that works on starships and doesn't work on Cardassians. Right, right. But it's not, I mean, it's just fundamental nonsense. It is, it's a gravity effect. And the response to gravity is muscle and, and bone mass and bone density. And so I just found it from a science fiction perspective. It's just like all over the shop. I think it's hilarious that we've gotten to the point where, like, Early science fiction, especially like in the 50s and 60s, is like really obsessed with this problem. And then by the time we get to like Star Trek, they're just like, we're just going to ignore it. Like, we're just going to like say it's not a problem. Gravity would not affect people in this way. But like you read books like by... Uh, Anne McCaffrey and like uh, Lois Bujold, like some of the like early great like science fiction writers, and they're all like having their main characters do exercises so yeah. that they don't lose <laughs> well, their bone density or their muscle mass. And like even to the point where Bujold says, "Look, if you lose that, like if you lose that muscle mass and that that bone density, you are inherently a different species. Like you yeah. are not like human anymore, basically." Which I think yeah. is also fascinating. Yeah, and they use that as effectively racism within the expanse. But you're mm-hmm. right, you know, 2001 AD, right? Absolutely yeah. characters it. Arthur C. Clarke's Rama series uh, as well touches on it. You get, you get um, the, the, the Star Trek thing is inertial dampers, right? Yeah. Gets away <laughs> from acceleration, gets away from force, <laughs> force and mass. Um, and um, uh, at, but you're right that, that fundamentally uh, two identical species living in a different gravity would just be different and, they, and it, is, it is crazy that they've managed to get away with it so far through two full series and half another one and then suddenly go Oh, yeah, it's just like a disability, right? Oh, God. Uh, I also hesitate to bring up the Orville on this podcast. 
I've never seen it. I don't it, know so. how you all Don't feel about that show at all. I think my mom likes it. That's all I know. But I there just, is a there is a character, a species slash character in the Orville who comes from a planet where the the gravity is actually much like more dense than Earth gravity, and so that gives them super strength when they leave the planet. Like it's a real like <laughs> it's a real like Superman Krypton. I was gonna say it's like a Krypton situation. Yeah, yeah. so she's like she's like the security officer on the Orville, and she like has super strength because she's not on her home planet. But then she gets like this problem where she starts to lose that muscle mass because she hasn't been back to her planet in so long. So we get this whole storyline about like how how will she get that back? You know, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, and I know, so I know the original concept for the character was that she was actually a regular. She was Dax, right, basically. And the the thing if she was Dax is you would have the time over multiple seasons to see how that adapts, that it's not then a disability allegory. Allegory, I agree, she's in a wheelchair, it's not an allegory. But like, but that it actually becomes the physics of it, that becomes the challenge of it, it becomes living with it and not just you're in you're cured you don't want the cure but i see it, it it's a chronic illness then it's yeah. it's does it does it resolve over time does it not resolve over time like yeah. it's not cure no cure yeah and i know we're bouncing around the episode a bit on this but like then the whole bit where julian's like well you can't go back and forth in between i'm like that makes no sense <laughs> at all. Like, you will never go back to your home pet planet. That makes no sense at all. At all. You've just got a bit more muscle, so when you go to your home planet, nothing. I mean, it, I don't know. You get to be that superwoman. You can bounce around a bit, yeah. It's like oh my god, Matt, I just realized you have a dog in the background. Sorry. Ellie's been Ellie's been sleeping this whole time. Did Ellie watch the episode? Uh, no, she didn't. No, mm. she didn't. <laughs> she, Sorry, uh, it was really important no for me to note the dog. Oh, no. no I worries. Love it. <laughs> she uh, was kept up uh, much, much later than normal last night, so she's, she's pretty tired. Um, <laughs> I love how she's, like, curved. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, well, I can see why, my why, tails going. Hi, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> So Great podcasting. I... <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to post a photo of Ellie on our uh, Twitter feed at some point. Um, with her permission, of course. Um, <laughs> the, so the only, I... Sorry, I was just going to say, the, the only other thing I wanted to talk about was... Oh, was yes, the, yes, yes. ...was the on the Dr. Patient romance thing. Like, this yeah, is, I kind of wanted to get into that, too. This is like, this is the first example. It's nowhere near the most egregious example of Julian in Doctor uh, Right. Is. He isn't her doctor at first, other than that he's everyone's doctor. He's, he's a fellow officer. He becomes her doctor when he starts treating her after halfway through their, whatever, second date or something. But, um, <laughs> and I'm, no, I'm certainly not saying any of it's good i don't mind that he was messaging her before he would it'd be his responsibility actually to do so i don't mind that they became kind of friends before and i think it's interesting how warm she is to him when she's so frosty to everyone literally yeah. everyone but she's not frost even though he's messed around with her 
her um, her uh, chair, she's still relatively warm to him and is and is open to talking to him and apologizes to him when he sort of comes to her quarters. So I don't know. I th- I thought there was some good things about about that relationship. Right. It's not perfect at all. But, um, I I wonder if part of it is that. I mean, and obviously we have never seen her interact with anyone ever before this episode, but I wonder if it's part of it. Part of it is that he like he took a little extra time to talk to her and maybe other people hadn't done that. They just didn't maybe didn't want to deal with her. As she says in the episode that she she knows that she becomes a quote unquote problem to people. So This is just, I know we mentioned it before, but this is just also like perfectly 90s Star Trek in which it's it's like, the thing is when you have like guest stars and guest star like storylines like this, that despite I think a lot of like the best, you know, well liberal intentioned <laughs> writers' rooms where like you end up almost like st- and like you know having you know d- disabled like writers on you know the staff or just specifically for this episode and doing like the sensitivity reading and stuff like that. It's like you're automatically othering Melora and you're giving like our series, our able-bodied series regular hot doctor. The brownie points for being, oh, he's different because he, like, you know, wants to get to know her and everyone else doesn't. And it's like, like, there are scenes where it's like, on face value, they are really cute together. Like, like, like you know what I mean? And, like, it works for me. But then I start thinking about and I think about, you know, like, the doctor-patient element. Some of these other kind of, like, you know, design elements and, you know, what we've been kind of talking and dancing talking about here and kind of dancing around with in in our heads and things like that where it's just like it's not and granted Melora is not a regular on the show Julian is but like it's about Julian and how his life has changed by the manic pixie wheelchair user like like you know what I mean like it's just totally ah, it's just yeah it's just tough like at least said, said this is like Googling the person before you date them. <laughs> I think it's like violating HIPAA before you date them. Oh, like, that's yeah. fair. Which, to be fair, to be fair, I don't think HIPAA exists in Star Trek no. because everyone is always discussing each yeah, other's medical that's, problems that with is each something other. We- we discussed that on this podcast a lot. Like, like even have last you ever week, heard of patient privacy. Like, yeah, even last week, like Cisco gave. Um, Gul Dukat someone's DNA like last week without question like to like see who they who their parents were we just watched the episode for the world is hollow and I have touched the sky and the part where Nurse Chapel like insists that McCoy tell Kirk about his terminal illness is like so painful it's like this is not Kirk's business in fact it's not even your business but you know whatever but Uh, I they're Klingon Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I was going to say, I'm so conflicted about this romance, mainly because not actually about the doctor thing. Like, if we're going to accept that everybody knows each other's medical business, then whatever. Fair. Like, Fair. whatever. But I'm super happy that we do get to see a disabled character have a romance. That's actually right. a lot more rare than you would think that it is because disabled people are sexless in a lot of pop culture. Like, they don't have right. sex. And there's a lot... 
of disabled people that do have sex, very creative sex and very enjoyable sex and queer sex and, you know, all of this stuff. And so on the one hand, I appreciate that. Like we get to see her as like a desirable person, like, you know, on the other hand, like you said, it can fall into the territory of, oh, isn't Julian such a great guy for dating a disabled person? I'm not sure we necessarily get that because we do get this whole conversation between Melora and Dax about long distance relationships. And so I think that that kind of implies that Dax also kind of sees her as someone who's capable of making their own decisions in a romance and who's capable of having a romance. Oh yeah. I get that that. being said. (laughs) Um, I don't know. Maybe the doctor thing does bother me a bit because, uh, (laughs) Disabled patients are also really taken advantage of a lot of times, and disabled communities have very adversarial relationships with medical communities at times as well. And so, again, it's hard because it's like this is Star Trek and this is just how everybody is around each other. But at the same time, it's just like, I don't think you understand like how many doctors have actually taken advantage of disabled patients because they're not considered capable of consent or Mm -hmm. nobody will believe them or whatever. And so like, but that's just me like bringing outside stuff into it as well. Maybe we're just supposed to take this at face value. Their Klingon restaurant date was very cute. I will say that. I love that. (laughs) I love the Klingon restaurant. I I watch it and I firstly just laughed. And secondly, (laughs) just went, this is why Deep Space Nine is the best. Trek because it has this stuff it just you, you just have them walking past a Klingon restaurant and it just doesn't exist a pop-up Klingon restaurant a street food Klingon restaurant right like yeah, yeah. Th- this doesn't exist on next gen doesn't even exist on Voyager yeah. Does right. it even it, exist after this episode? Like I feel like <laughs> this is just like there's... a one or two night only like type of. I feel like I it... do feel like there's yeah. a Klingon restaurant in the future or like other types of restaurants, but they all might yeah. just be random pop ups. I don't really remember. <laughs> like you get Maybe seasonal was... Klingon food. Like it was like yeah. a street, food, street food festival, and they had like a... <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I was... <laughs> I'm in love with the Klingon chef slash restaurant oh my owner. Gosh, yes. I was just the actor, and now I don't remember who. Uh, it was. He's just <laughs> such a like. I don't know. He's such a like big like this big dude playing like the Klingon version of a violin is just yes. like so great. When he, I felt when... like I recognized that song and I didn't meant to look it up, like the tune of it. Obviously, I don't know the Klingon language. I mean, that might not be obvious, but I do not <laughs> understand Klingon. <laughs> I I just it gave me when he was playing that it gave me like Lady and the Tramp vibes. I'll be yeah. honest. <laughs> Oh, you know what it reminded me of, Matt? That song that Junior Soprano sings at the end of season three of The Sopranos. Uh, okay. It, like, this yeah, was yeah, a yeah. similar tune to that, and now I'm on a mission to, like, either confirm or realize I'm wrong. <laughs> I'll do that later. <laughs> yeah, when um, when Melora basically goes, there's nothing worse than half-dead rocked, and then yeah. he just throws the plate behind him, not even, and I would have loved, it's not that show. But, like, Lower Decks would have had someone walking behind him and just get hit in the face by that play. Oh, totally. <laughs> I just feel like he gives 110% to any yeah. relationship he's in. I'm just going to throw that out there. Melora <laughs> <laughs> uh, was so hot in that scene. Like, I didn't, didn't even, I, like, didn't include this l- later because my... Um, 
my thirst thing is going to be a little bit more superficial than this. (laughs) But um, just, like, her knowing what she wanted and, like, knowing that they were getting served shit, like, it kind of reminds me of, like, I have a lot of Indian coworkers and we'll go to get, like, buffet and they're, like, so demanding about what... And it's not the same because it's, like, you know, obviously Melora's not Klingon, but, like, they'll be like non out and my my coworkers will be like no bring us fresh non like they're it's like i don't know just that demanding and knowing what you want and not in a rude way but i although i think a klingon would appreciate it to be in a rude way uh, my yeah. coworkers are not rude um <laughs> but i just uh yeah it was it was good i liked it i liked that day i liked the scene before it when um so i so we're, we're, I don't know where we are on structure no of the idea. podcast episode, but like the sequence is sort of, she shows up to command um, and having asked to basically take a runabout out uh, on her own. And Dax is basically like, yeah, you're not going to be allowed to do that. And then she's right. uh, not, and entirely fairly, right? And she's just like, oh, is it because of the chair? And it's like, no, because you're an ensign and you just turned up here. You're obviously <laughs> not going to be allowed. And then uh, he tur- she turns up to command where Julian and Dax and Cisco are talking about her, and she's pissed off. And I think I think they tread the line on this quite well, actually. I think she sort of has reason to be pissed off and history to be pissed off. And yet mm-hmm. Cisco also is like, I have to have meetings with my senior staff, and we talk about personnel issues. And it's not unre- and you made a request to go. And request denied because no. Um, so I kind of thought that was quite good. I, I, I'm interested in your take on it, Taz. But like, I felt like they handled both sides of that quite well. I I think this is another problem, and we talked about it actually last episode. I was on. I don't know if you remember this, Matt or Annalise, where we talked about how sometimes you get like the time period that the episode is made in sort of intrudes on the Federation-ness of it. And this is where we're trying to have a conversation about a 90s problem in a utopian (laughs) Federation, (laughs) which the 90s problem is people having conversations about disabled people when they're not in the room, right? But the problem is, is that if you lived in a federation in a utopia where we're always having conversations, this is like the doctor thing. If we're always yeah. having yeah. conversations about other people when they're not in the room, but not in a like leaving them out sort of way, in a yeah. like trying to get stuff done sort of way, then why does she have to be pissed about? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, it's sort of yeah. like, uh, you know, we're we're trying to say something about disability in the 90s, but we're trying to say it in a context that maybe it doesn't make sense in. Yeah. Right. I I did get the impression that she'd been in a situation where people had talked about her and not that kind of person upper, you know, upper management like personnel conversation. So I felt like and Lazie said this, like she had she probably had history of to be angry about and wanted to make sure that this was not the same thing. I mean, at the same time, it's Starfleet, it's a military structure and I just can't imagine that that the any ensign, regardless if they acted like that to a, a commander, so two two three grades four grades above, wouldn't have a bit of pushback. So and so I, I was it was interesting the way 
was written and portrayed, I thought, early on because she's very spiky. She's very, um, uh, you know, instantly defensive about almost anything. And then they, they kind of then use Julian to come in and address that. Um, and I, I found him quite charming when he comes in and addresses it. But, you know, again, we're dealing with, with it now from four different contexts of 93, yeah. the issue, the, the, yeah. the, the Starfleet future and 2021. So. Yeah, and, and I think that's where... Because all Star Trek, whether it's like your last Battlefield in like 66 or 67, whenever that came out, I guess now it'd be later, it'd be like 68-ish. Um or this 93 or like even part of this conversation is reminding me of the most recent season at the time of our recording season three of star Trek discovery, where it's like rooted in its own time. Like, like Tessa was mentioning before and like, it's like on before discovery season three started during kind of the press tours, there was much excitement about the inclusion of a trans character and a non-binary character on, on discovery. And then our crew ends up assuming, and like, I guess spoilers, late spoilers for, for season three of Discovery, but just innately like assumes the gender of the non-binary character. And part of like, it turns out that they are kind of on a, on a journey in terms of their, their identity and, you know, things like that over the course of the season for, for various reasons. But like you would hope by, at this point, it's 23rd century humans in the, 30 something century, 33rd century or whatever that we would be past like accidental misgendering and like assuming the same way that like, you know, with, with Malora specifically and talking about kind of these, these tropes and why Malora can be read as being kind of so prickly based on her experiences in the healthcare system or being perceived as a problem, like where she's coming from in terms of her own lived experience in contrast to you know, oh, she's not behaving in a certain way. And I like, you know, I'm then getting defensive because she's getting defensive. And it's like kind of that not to go all, all self-help book because it's also kind of problematic, but like the seeking to be understood sort of thing. Whereas it's like, again, just assuming this is the way we behave in the office and not recognizing some of, you know, where Melora's lived experiences and things are. And I think a good example of that is, Julian altering the the chair because he thought he could could do it better, right? Where and also, could they not transport her last wheelchair? Like, I'm very confused on why she doesn't have like her own wheelchair and why oh. they refuse to bring it with them. No, yeah, they, they do talk about weird. that. They talk about it. They basically say that uh, this is the weird hand wave of the whole thing, right? Which is that in Starfleet ships, and you see this a little bit in the runabouts. She has like a wrist device that allows somehow her, her, <laughs> her to interface with the gravity systems such that her personal gravity is relieved in a certain way. So she doesn't have a wheelchair when she's on starships. She only needs one on, um, on Deep Space Nine because it's a uh, Cardassian station and the, oh. uh, and the systems don't oh. interface properly. So that's the, okay. that's the reason why. Uh, like she has the the so she's obviously been in places before where she's needed a, cha- a chair, but that's the reason why. Like they basically say that, yeah, it, it's it's a hand wave. They say that right. on, on Federation ships this isn't a problem because we've got the magic technology that makes it work for her. 
but on uh, on uh, Eat Fish Nine because as uh, Miles will say so often, it's a Kardashian station, and these damn Kardashian computers don't talk properly. Uh, then right. then it doesn't work. Well, and I should also I should also mention that I am not I am disabled, but I am not a wheelchair user, so I should probably get that. I should have gotten that out front, but like I. <laughs> I do appreciate the fact that they show her as being mobile in different contexts. Like you have the times where she doesn't, where she's in the less gravity and she is moving in ways that she's able to move her body. And she is, like you said, she is abled in that context if we want to talk about it in those terms. But then we also get like, even when she's using the chair, there are times where she stands up out of the chair and she has these other like mobility devices that she's able to use, which I really appreciate because there's a big stereotype of wheelchair people as being only able to use the wheelchair, which isn't Mm -hmm. true for a lot of people. A lot of people who are in wheelchairs can't move outside of the wheelchair, but there are a lot of people who are ambulatory wheelchairs where because of pain or mobility issues, it's Mm -hmm. easier for them to use a wheelchair, but they can actually stand up or walk, et cetera, um, for short distances. My my sister has been through this a lot. So um, she's, she's doing better now, but there were periods in her life she has um, a joint hyper hyper joint mo- uh, mobility syndrome. There were periods in her life where her joints were not strong enough, and she needed just to spend most of her time getting around in a wheelchair. And she's in a slightly stronger position now. Um, so again, there's so many parts of the spectrum of this. Uh, but yeah, there there there's so much. It's not just digital, right? Right. And I I appreciate that they showed that here, not just for representation, for representation shape sake, but also that's a very dangerous assumption for a lot of people to assume that, oh, you have to be like, if you really need a wheelchair, you just are in the wheelchair all the time, because that leads to the opposite assumption of, oh, well, if you can get up and walk, then you don't really need that wheelchair, like that you're faking it or whatever, which can lead to some really dangerous situations for disabled people. So I did appreciate that aspect of this representation. We had, this is like kind of related when I, when I was eight years old, we went to Disney world with another family and the, the mother of the other family was going to have like a hip replacement soon. So she had a wheelchair the whole time we were in Disney, but like she could get up and walk for a short period of time until she was too tired. And so we, we just like brought the wheelchair around with us all the time. But I do think, that she would, we would get looks when there were times when no one was sitting in the wheelchair. That ha- that and that was, I was eight, so that was like 1990. You know, like that definitely yeah. was something that happened. People yeah. would look at us like we were like abusing because I think back then, if you had someone who was disabled, you can kind of like cut the line at Disney. So we would get like people looking at us like we were horrible. I mean, I know it sounds really horrific to a lot of people, uh, but. People who are disabled are the victim of violent attacks and who are and are yeah. often it's often because the person perceives them to be faking it. And mm. so yeah. that that is like a huge deal within the disability community. And so I do appreciate that this sh- is like, no, like she has like in different situations, she has different levels of mobility. And it just kind of depends on, you know, what's going on, even when she's taking like the the medication or whatever that whatever the magic cure is at the end that allows her to kind of like walk around for a while there are limits to it right like so she yeah. can move like quote unquote normally or in an enabled manner for like a couple hours but then like she gets fatigued or she gets like 
you know, something happens and she has to like sit back down or rest for a little while, et cetera. Which is actually a completely realistic um, portrayal of someone who's just got a different, used to a different gravity. Is that mm-hmm. they just their muscles just wouldn't have the same strength to 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 be able to perform at the same level for the same period of time. Yeah. How do you want to talk about how prickly she is? (laughs) Yeah, since we're like completely off topic now. (laughs) No, I don't think we are. Um, I I don't think we are off topic. For what it's worth, I I moved some things around in our notes. She's like, (laughs) I don't know. Again, like I don't. I feel like every time I say something, it's like somebody's gonna be like, "That's not my experience," because there's no monolithic like experience yeah. of like disability, but there are harmful stereotypes and tropes, and yeah. one of them is that if you're disabled, you have to be angry and bitter all the time, and that kind of comes across. And again, if there were more representations of disability, this one wouldn't be so problematic because it's bearing the weight of like everything, right? Like there are angry and bitter disabled people, just like there are perfectly happy like disabled people just like there are perfectly happy able people and so like but her prickliness comes from like this really defensive like place and we don't really get to see her like have a lot of joy in this episode we only get to see the one scene where she's like flying around her room um which is a great moment of joy i think but, like, other than that, she's, like, an extremely aggressive person. And it actually really bothered me when Julian was like, you're really aggressive. Like, like I was like, F you, Julian. She has every yeah. right to, like, behave however she wants. Like, yeah. But uh, that that – it's just a trope. It's not a particularly, like – terrible one in this context and again I probably wouldn't feel this way about it if there were more disabled people on the show but mm. that just kind of like rubbed me the wrong yeah. way I mean it it rates above Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump but that's yes. that's that's not saying a lot <laughs> that is true <laughs> oh, I mean gosh. I would say that I think she de- after Julian wonderfully and, and selflessly opened her up for uh, for everyone um, I, think, <laughs> I think um you do get her like listening to music with Dax. You do get her talking, asking Dax questions that um that are not strictly related, uh, relationship based. You get her being um you know very competent in Klingon and knowing what what food she likes there. So. I think I, I get I, I completely agree that you don't get much joy other than that. But I do think she's she basically goes from prickly to non prickly in the space of the conversation with Julian. I but like, <laughs> I, I I hear you and I and I and I don't disagree. But I think some of the complexity or, or lack of complexity or the way that like we're reading it if we take it like more than just at face value is it's like is this softening of Melora because of the treatments like you know like as she goes on that that arc with julian for like you know leaning needing less accommodations or adaptations to to move in quote unquote normal gravity right like and like the way the episode when we spend more time with her it's like how much of that is us just getting to know different aspects of Melora and how much of that is like, Oh, well there's this possible cure. So obviously she's becoming happier now or like, you know what I mean? And I, I don't think that that's what you're, you're saying, Lazi to be clear. No. And like, I don't, and like, I think 
so, so my my logic and, on that is that fifty percent of it happens before the idea yeah, of the no, cure fair comes. Up. Fair enough. Fair I, enough. I agree. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I will say uh, you make an interesting point, which is if you just remove the concept of a cure from this episode, I think it's a better episode. I think hundred percent. I think yes. if you just get rid of that completely, there's nothing. Nothing is different in this episode. Because if you remove that, you can in fact give her a little bit more space and a little bit more yes. um, agency to explain her history, where she's come from. When they're sitting in a restaurant talking, he's talking. She's not talking that much. <laughs> now, maybe that is, uh, again, the sort of background of where they're coming from and he's more chatty. Um, I do have <laughs> a did note, and this is like not spoilers for later, but he talks about his father being a diplomat and him like, I'm pretty sure that that gets contradicted later <laughs> in the series. I don't think his father is a diplomat at all. Yeah, I don't so remember my question that is, either. Is he just making that that story up to make himself seem charming about the fact he can talk about he could have used a herb to to cure this person, so and then he uses it to deflect and go. Actually, I wanted to do tennis, not uh, not. Um, I- I don't I don't see Julian as someone that would like he has a lot of stories of all the great things he does we've seen that already in this you know season and a few episodes I I don't picture him like making up something that isn't true yeah but I do agree with you Sorry, sorry I do agree with you that if you remove the cure from the episode, you still can have the conversation where Melora starts asking Dax for advice because I think having a long distance or a subspace relationship as they call it in the episode is something that would be a real concern in Starfleet. Like, especially if someone's on a space station and someone else is on a starship, like you might not see someone for a really long time unless you're stationed in the same place and you can always get changed. It can always change where you get where you're stationed. Like we had O'Brien was on Enterprise and then moved to Deep Space Nine. So I do think it's interesting to ask Dax these questions because Dax has had a very long life. And, you know, Dax has been married before. Or the, the symbiont, not Jadzia. And it's just, it was just really interesting to hear them talk and how Dax was giving examples of two different species who can't breathe the same air had been in, in a romance. Like, I... I mean, it sounds it w- it was cute. I thought that was really cute. <laughs> but yeah, I like that her one example of a successful Starfleet relationship was like 150 years ago. Like that. <laughs> yeah, but I also think that that's like uh, Jadzia is still mostly Curzon at this point. And therefore, all she's she's all about just fucking other people's partners and <laughs> yeah. messing around. <laughs> uh, she's yet to find someone who can pure, who can really meet up to her uh, needs and expectations. It's like spo- spoilers for a season. I think it's season five episode of Deep Space Nine, which is arguably one of the worst in the series. But yeah, we find out that Curzon died having sex with Vanessa Williams on Ryza. So that's, that's, that's Curzon. <laughs> I mean, if you I completely go. forgot about that. If you had to go. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. I think the cure narrative is kind of unnecessary, although we do get this really interesting thing where she chooses to stay disabled instead of become cured, which seems mm-hmm. very like anti the idea that like 
all disability has been cured in this wonderful future that we've had. And which there is are, there are a lot of disabled people who don't want to be cured. And so when disability is talked about in terms of curing, it is really detrimental to them. So that is interesting, this part of the episode. I'm not sure it really fits with the other conversations that we've been having in this episode. <laughs> That's okay. Um, especially because there, even though we keep talking about cures to certain disabilities, there are no cures to a lot of disabilities. So it's kind right. of a moot conversation to begin with. Um, and I, yeah. It, it did remind me of like, and I always mention this probably, but like Jordy on TNG, like there are various episodes where someone came to it, came to the Enterprise, or they're going to some planet, and someone offers to like fix Jordy's sight, and he always turns them down. And then I don't really remember what happened because in the TNG movies, he does not wear his visor anymore, and I don't remember why that was he's Doesn't not he cured he has the implants implants yeah, oh, he, yeah. Basically, okay. he basically gets implants that do the same as the visor oh okay presumably because um he just didn't want to wear a visor the actor didn't want to wear a visor all the time i don't think there's okay. any other reason for it because it looks yeah cool. that makes he sense he does he does get cured briefly in the insurrection movie right. where he like goes down to the planet because it's got like curative properties I and, remember that. and But he, like, leaves the planet. Like, he doesn't want to stay there yeah. forever and have sight or whatever. Like, so I, I appreciated that. I appreciated that she said that, like, having this lower, gra- like, body that's adapted to the lower gravity is part of her and it's part of her identity. It reminded me a lot of how, like, um, like autistic communities, um, neurodiversity communities will say, like, no, like, this is not like a disease that needs to be cured. It's who I am. Right. It really reminded me of like deaf communities who are the same way who say like, no, like mm-hmm. we just have a different language. You know, we're not, yeah, you know, diseased sure. or broken or anything like that. So I did appreciate that. But yeah, it did feel very tacked on to the end. One thing play, that really, oh, sorry. So I was you go. To play, to play my role in this, it reminded me of X-Men. So. Yeah, <laughs> yes. We would not have a podcast without Lazi mentioning X Men. <laughs> Who specifically did you think of? Oh, um, I remember um, doing a podcast. I can't remember the name of it. It was a very good podcast where we uh, watched a movie called X Men: The Last Stand. And talk about... I wonder what podcast that could be. Like, uh, <laughs> some sort of some sort of marsupial or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, so there's a cure uh, in the X and the Lost Stand, um, a not great movie, all those for our reaction to it, to it on that podcast. <laughs> there is a uh, a mutant cure um, that is found, and a couple of the characters, in fact, a number of the characters go back and forth through this. They talk about mm-hmm. some of them want it, some of them find it offensive that it exists, and many of them go, you stupid idiots, the government is going to weaponize this. Um, uh, which which it immediately does. Which it immediately <laughs> yeah, does. of course. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. One yeah. one thing that really bothered me in the episode is that Julian starts researching the cure again, or not again, starts researching the cure without discussing it with Melora. And like, you know, he's a doctor. He is completely free to research whatever he wants, but it just felt icky because it was clearly about this specific person and she had never shown any interest in wanting things to change like the whole episode she was basically saying like I don't need extra help like etc etc and like 
everyone or once it like it seems like it's working a little bit everyone around julian is like making it about him not about her like she's feeling weird about it and he was like you let me fly for the first time i let you walk or even and like that is the cringiest shit ever hate that and then i have two things about that line one yeah awful awful line shut up julian i'd be like i'm never making out with you again (laughs) two it's like a Ted Mosby ass work line. In space. How has he never been in zero gravity? Yeah, How that makes has no he sense. Never in his zero yeah. gravity. Uh, it makes no uh, sense. Well, and it's like, such a human centric too uh, line. Or I mean, it's an allegory for an abled person thinking that walking is like the, the end height all. of experience <laughs> yeah. that it's like but even if we take it out of the disability context even if we talk about it in terms of like species yeah. like what a human thing to say like walking <laughs> is the same as flying like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then when o'brien and like everyone's kind of congratulating julian and o'brien's like you'll be in the medical journals i think that's such a gross thing for him to say right in front of the patient like that he's trying to treat like in front of the patient it should be we want the patient to have the best life possible not oh you're such a great doctor you're gonna be like written up in the history books for this like that felt really gross to me this is my feeling that o'brien's just a grumpy bastard in this episode (laughs) (laughs) he's just grumpy that julian's done something he's grumpy that that do you think he was jealous a little bit, maybe. I agree. Yeah. So one other line um, after before they before he flies, but after <laughs> if you ask him if he wants to come in, and uh, he says he says the line, "I can't tell you how curious I was about this," and I was just like, "This feels like something that Julian would say." A, it's weird, but it feels like that's the sort of thing Julian says about a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> it's Julian's like base state is curiosity about uh, things. <laughs> I'm, that's, I'm just yeah. like I'm sure you could take a picture of Julian and Garrick together and put that caption on it as well. <laughs> well, I mean, it reminds me even of the pilot where he was like so excited um, to explore frontier medicine, frontier medicine and this whole bit yeah. of like I'm going to see new things. Yeah. You know, Which it just is- feels very much in line with with Julian as a character. I agree. I agree. And he's still, which in that case, it's kind of okay. Like, that's okay. You see that slow development of character. And I think that we can still make fun of him, though. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, that's where that's my frustration with the use of Melora in the one episode is that I'd, I mean, I'd have loved to see what, what you do with that over a period of time. If it, if it were, if it was realistic that it would be done responsibly and well, uh, but like if you take that character with those challenges and then you develop them and you give them, you know, a character in a multi-episode arc and see what, how they would respond to differently, these different things and build the relationships rather than having to squash it all into to 44 minutes. And again, like the, <laughs> The irony, of course, is the reason why they didn't um, uh, do this for uh, for Dax in the first place is that it would have been too expensive and too messy and too fussy to do. And, you know, isn't that just the reality of, of the experience, right? Yeah, and that's why they don't cast disabled actors yeah. is because they assume that they'll be too much of a, a, a problem yeah. or an imposition. And 
I think you answered the question, though, about what this would have looked like responsibly, because, I mean, you reminded me that, like, Jordy is a disabled character who has seasons and seasons long arcs. And it's not that they've always treated that responsibly or they've always done like the best representation with him, but he gets a lot more nuance, obviously, than Melora does. So it's kind of weird that we've almost regressed from having like a main disabled character to a one episode character. Yep. Yeah. And I, I just like on an offhand, I just was confirmed looking up to see which books it was, but Melora does become a, a recurring character. I think it's in the Titan novels, the post nemesis oh. in the, in the Star Trek lit verse, um, in the kind of post nemesis Riker and Troy on the, the Titan novels. So if folks want more, more Melora, that's, that's where they can, they can I find have it. one Titan novel from that is actually like Picard era that I wonder if she's still in there. I haven't, I started reading it and put it down and I have to pick it up again. Uh, yeah, my, that's like, that's like written last year. Or the year yeah, before. I don't know. So this is like the old, like before, because right. like Picard kind of has forced, I think that that novel combined continuity is kind of ending. Right. Picard counteracts some of it, but no, I'm sorry. Sure. Sorry, Lazzie. What were you saying? Oh, I was just going to say, uh, my, yeah, my shame here is I haven't read a single tie-in Star Trek book. <laughs> so I haven't either. I own two of them. Um, one I started and I was a little bored by, and the other one I haven't started, but I know I'm going to love it because it's about Tilly when she's younger. And that's a, a Discovery character for those that have not watched that yet. Uh, one of the best Discovery characters. Yeah. she's. Uh, we love her. So, like, you know what's great about everyone, like, both of our our guests on this podcast, and I think how good this discussion has been, is it's been about themes and the the, the titular role um, in Melora. But we had an, a classic A plot and B plot in this episode that come together in the end with the climactic showdown on the runabout. And, like, all the Quark and, and Fall It Caught stuff just... Ultimately, it doesn't really matter. No, <laughs> and, like really there's, there's like, I mean, so this is the this is the opportunity, and it's like I've been looking at the notes and like, should we get back to this? Should we? Is it worth it? But it's like I think all this the Malora discussion was 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 too good to kind of take up any more time on on Quark and and fall it. But uh, now's your chance, I, folks, to to get out your Quark <laughs> thoughts for the episode. Elise, I we'll start do- with you. I do enjoy that Odo kind of like you can tell by his one facial expression that he does wonder what his life would be like if he let Falicott murder Cor, <laughs> and that he's not that upset about it, <laughs> or he like is he like kind of looks like oh yeah I guess I'll just do my job, which is to imply that he will try to stop whatever murder plot is going to happen. But um, he doesn't seem that excited about it, is it <laughs> because bad? he's like, "Is it bad that I think Fallot Cot is the justified one in this story?" <laughs> like, I don't, I don't like think both so. Odo I- and Quark don't come off particularly well in this plot. No, and th- this is something I like feel very deeply. Star Trek prisons are so extra. Like, I definitely think that all prisons are too much and bad, but. Sending someone to a labor camp because they hijacked a shipment of of Romulan ale is fucking bananas. And, like, that is not a punishment fitting the crime, in my opinion. So the fact that Quark 
oh, uh, like, Cork, I guess, sold him out, and Odo was like, oh, you should both have been in that labor camp. Like, that's such a shitty, like, no one should ever be in a labor camp, ever. Like, that is so horrible. So, yeah, so I feel like Falakot, like, didn't even do close to the worst thing he could have someone like, could do he fucking deserves those 199 gold pressed bars of latinum like yeah should be paying him some restitution like yeah he was in the labor camp for eight years like that's that's not cool <laughs> yeah i think that's 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 in keeping with more even more with the Cardassians than the romulans i would say even the romulans yeah a little yeah. illogical for them yeah that really did i mean i guess so it was a shipment of Romulan ale, but did we find out that it was definitely the Romulans that imprisoned him? I don't know that they ever said, but I did, oh, I did assume question. it was. Yeah, yes, they're, kind of, they're was. kind of murky on that. He said yeah. something like, um, when Odo's talking to him about, like, you can tell what someone's planning by the way they walk, which is a weird thing for <laughs> right. Odo to say. Um, but he does say something about, like, uh, carrying um, Odo says like you're carrying the weight on your shoulders and he says oh it must have been all those Romulan stone blocks or bricks but so but yeah, oh, you're right. yeah you know what you are right but, uh, but I you're right like it, I, yeah I made the same jump to be honest I just went well, no, I think it was a Romulan prison but the question is who sentenced him to it like was it the Romulans yeah, was it the it Federation was it the Cardassians like I don't because uh, Odo's able to look up, like, the original charge sheet and know that Quark was, like, involved. So it is very confusing yeah. as to who had jurisdiction here. I doubt all these governments are sharing information with each other, like, so that they have yeah, one, what's the like, extradition it, treaties It's like, yeah, it, I don't think powers. that all of these um, planets have, like, an Interpol or Interpol, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> one thing I did find really funny is when my favorite quota moment of the episode is when Quark is like, this guy's gonna kill me, and Odo tries to seem so indifferent about it, and he's like, he like says you sell like because Ferengi d- do this you sell pieces of yourself when you die and and quote and Quark's like yes and he's like I'll buy one like like that's how I'll support <laughs> you and all this okay so where is Odo putting this piece of Quark in his quarters like oh. is it gonna be like a shrine is he gonna throw it in the back of his closet like Meredith Grey does with her mother's ashes like what is happening well, he's gonna put like it in his Hannibal bucket Lecter situation yeah. <laughs> no, I thought. No, I was gonna say he was gonna put it in his bucket so he could swim around with it when he regenerates. <laughs> That's so gross, but I love it. <laughs> oh God! Um, I, I want. Uh. To, I want to uh, add plus one to Elise's point about his face when Quark says he threatened to kill me, and he just Odo just turns or Rene just turns with this most amazing smile, creepy smile face. It's wonderful. Uh, I love Although I'd like two. to point out that Odo's reaction or nonchalance towards this issue causes Quark to not call him eventually when Pallet ca- kidnaps him, threatens him. He, he, right. tries, to, he tries to call him. He, uh, yeah. he, gets, he gets a knife at Israel or something. I think. Right, but then he like oh. lets him go. Like, do you think he yeah. could have like turned yeah, yeah, yeah. the communicator on at least so Quark or so Odo would know he was in trouble like this to me seems like some real a cab territory like <laughs> oh yeah I think I had that in my notes and then I like shortened my notes but yeah 
Odo is very is at like this point, emoting is very, very big a cab. Yeah, at this point, this Odo is very. Um, he he has not perhaps had the nuance that he gets in later seasons when it comes to like things like justice on the station, <laughs> which is funny means. because. Because we've had Odo-centric episodes where they thought he was guilty and he was innocent. And it just feels like you would think he would use that experience he went through to be a little bit more understanding. Right. But instead, because Quark annoys him, he's yeah. not going to like treat it you, like it's a real s- thing. <laughs> well, you say I annoys, I say likes flirting with, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, think, yeah, I uh, just don't understand how Falek got eat. His nose attaches to his chin. <laughs> he has He's to not use the a first straw, person. For sure. He's not the first person we saw that had that. I feel like that. I feel like I've seen other characters. Or, or maybe like his mouth others. is ornamental and he has like a different maybe. orifice. He does, that he, maybe. He does eat because Quark like tries to wine and dine him. But like. The whole time. I just keep looking and just going. That must be really <laughs> frustrating. I mean, you know, since you talk out of the whole mouth, time, the whole time that Cork was wi- trying to wine and dine him, I was like, Cork just like from Cork's perspective. I don't think that this is like a very nice thing to do, but I'm like, Cork, if he says he's gonna kill you, like just poison him or something. Yeah, <laughs> but then we would have no episode. That's true, and we wouldn't get this wonderful ending, this wonderful wait until dark esque ending that we yes. get. Have you all seen the film Wait Until Dark? I have so, not. I've I added have it to my not, list. Actually. This is a, if you like thrillers slash horror, <laughs> this is a great film. It stars Audrey Hepburn, who plays a blind woman. You've sold. I'm yeah. sold already. So she plays a blind woman, which again, abled character playing disabled. We can talk about that. But she plays a blind woman whose husband is away and she accidentally receives like her husband travels a lot and he comes back into town and accidentally grabs like the wrong suitcase and it's full of drugs. And so mm. he leaves again, but leaves the suitcase with her. I, I don't know if it's a suitcase or a teddy bear. It's been a while since I've seen it. But then, like, this gang is trying to get their drugs back. And so they find out she's blind and they're, like, terrorizing her, basically. Like, they're trying like oh. they're trying to infiltrate, like, her house. But she, like, finally figures it out. And, like, the last scene of the film is about 10 minutes of pure, pure blackness because she breaks all the lights in her house. So that way, mm-hmm. every, they're all on the same playing field. Like, she's blind. They can't see anything. And so, like, they're all kind of, like, on the same plane. It's a wonderful movie, super tense. Like, I unfortunately watched it right before I went to sleep and was terrified the rest of the night. (laughs) But uh, that is what happens at the end of this episode, is that she is basically leveling the playing field. Oh, totally. It's a real Rudolph situation. (laughs) It also reminds me of, like, the penal, the, like, I use that word incorrectly, the, like, final stand between Arya and the waif in Game of Thrones mm-hmm. because she, yeah. Arya had all that time where her eyesight had been taken away so she was able to fight the waif like in the dark and it kind of reminded me of that too not before you mentioned but when you're explaining this movie yeah I, I appreciate it I thought it was a good twist to like have her be the one that resolves the situation. Yeah, she she saved the day. Um, I yeah. I mean, like, I don't know. 
this will probably be the last thing I say about the disability aspect of it, but like the whole like independence dependence storyline throughout this is also really weird to me because of the way that Bashir talks about her as being like, Oh, she just wants basic accommodations. And then she like, won't accept anything else. Like she's just like, whatever. And that's like really a weird thing to say about somebody. Like, doesn't she deserve help? Before you've, Especially yeah. before you've even met them. Right. Like, he said that before subspace. even having meeting her. She'd met, they'd met, they'd been communicating on subspace beforehand. So like, I, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree. It's still weird. But I think the implication is that they had built up a relationship before she arrives from communicating on, on subspace. And that's right. why, why he, and he's then also creepy Google stalked her about like what she was like <laughs> in the academy and so on and so forth. Yeah, but- that's the part that got me because the way he talks about her at the academy is like, it's very super crip, which is another trope. Like she's admirable because she doesn't let her disability like stop her from doing things and she doesn't accept help that she doesn't need. Right. It's Which it's- is like really weird. Like people just need help sometimes and it's, it's like okay the trope to have of- it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the... How it reminds me of when you hear stories of disabled people overcoming and doing above and beyond what's expected and how that is like praised, which those stories are always great, but it also not everyone can can do that there and. Those stories are universally pretty much reviled in the disability community because they're called inspiration porn. Right. Like when I say they're great, I don't mean that the story is great and it's great that we're like talking about it, but I mean great for that person. That's that's what I mean. Yeah. No, I mean I I totally get that. But the idea that like in order to be valuable as a disabled person, you have to like achieve something that's like Yeah. Over and beyond what most abled people can usually do, for sure. Um, and the way that it's no, that, framed—that's kind of what I was getting at. I yeah, just and the way that it's bad. framed in the media is very like, it, it's very much like, oh, well, if this person can do this, then what is your excuse to this abled yeah, person? And so the disabled exactly. person doesn't even be—they're not even a person in those stories. They become like right, for this sure. archetypal figure of inspiration, right? Um, that yeah. purely exists for the benefit of like an abled reader and so like there is a little of that in this episode because of all of these like like she has not let her she has not let her disability in this higher gravity situation stop her from exploring space yeah it's like she's not any better than all the people who stayed on the home planet like you know like she's not like a better person for doing what she's doing she just wanted a different life or she wanted to do something different than them so like that that'll probably be like the the last thing I'll say on on this particular <laughs> topic but I do think the d- the conversation that she keeps having with different people especially Julian about like dependence and independence is really interesting like because like there's this idea in our culture that independence is like really deified and like revered like we have to be like you have to be self-sufficient you have to be independent or like you're a burden and for a lot of disabled people, it's like, why don't, what if we rethought that and just thought everybody is interdependent on each other anyway? And we right. can't exist that without other people. So why do we have to like expect disabled people to exist without help? So no, like, totally. I, I thought that conversation was 
really interesting. And I wish they would have explored that a little bit more instead of like veering into the cure territory. Right. Like they, I mean, they talk about it early on. And I think Julian says a line to her, like in space, we all rely on each other because it's like a dangerous profession, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, But I do think it's true of all professions and all people. We We do rely on each other all the time. And there's, that's great. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. And why are some forms of help accepted and other forms of help not accepted? Like, that's, I guess, yeah. the central question. For sure. Yeah. Also, I, the Cardassians I, I, are the worst at architecture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who yeah. would design um, a door with a rim or something? Whatever she said. <laughs> that one. Yeah, no, but it also just makes no sense because you've got to move stuff around, right? Like, regardless mm-hmm. of people, you've got to move things around. Uh, but yeah, no, I really like the line, I think, of, you know, in space, we all have to depend on it, on it, each other, which, as you say, is actually in society, we all have to depend on on each other. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. And then, but then to take it back to, to my earlier point about the expanse, they show the danger of space much more in shows like the expanse or, or other shows right. where a little, which are a little bit grittier, where you get people dying, for example, you get people being space you get people um you know from like tiny accidents from <laughs> tiny accidents exactly yeah. right um and and you get people being cruel and using space around it whereas because of the sort of utopian particularly coming out of next gen utopian star trek no one really dies no one dies because of space no one gets spaced space is very Safe, very, you know, yeah, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Very, um, very clean. Very, uh, I don't know. There is a word I'm looking for, but I can't remember. The the one closest example in season two of Lower Decks, which just finished. There's a scene where the four main characters are accidentally left on like some sort of. Um, I don't remember if it was like. I don't know, something outside of their ship and they were left there for like hours and like they still survived and they were, they, you know, they were a little, you know, out of it for a while, but they, it was, you knew they were going to be fine. You know what, the, that episode of Lower Decks where they have to strip the outside of the hull, uh, et cetera, like that is the closest I think Star Trek yeah. gets to stripping away that shell, that like that security blanket that Star Trek deals with. with space. There is an episode of Voyager that is sort of like that when Tom and Bolana are stranded in space in their spacesuits. Do you remember oh, that? I, Where they yes, like, yes, they're yes, on like yes. an away mission together and everything goes catastrophically wrong in the shuttle. And the end of the episode is literally them floating in space in these suits yeah, before getting that picked was before up. The- yeah. That was before they got together because they kind of had some like things that they admitted to each other. And then the next episode, they pretended that they didn't say any of that. Right. Yeah. But they think they're going to die <laughs> and like they're yeah. running out of oxygen like, and like, yeah. yeah. So that and, would like, be the I one other you. episode. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be the one other episode I would think of is, is that one. Um. Yeah. Before we move it to our regular scheduled segments on this. How do we feel about the whole Little Mermaid analogy that's made? Because we we talked about how if Melora continues, you know, she, you know, in the end, she decides not to have these treatments anymore. Um, But they imply that, or they straight up say that if she continues with the treatments, she won't be able to go back home, which we all think is, I think we all think is nonsense. But, um, 
I don't know the difference between the Disney version of The Little Mermaid and the Hans Christian Andersen Little Mermaid. I don't it's know if you have more on really that, It's actually really important. Because, okay, and yes, I, please. And yeah. I thought that while watching the episode, like, because she goes, <laughs> she goes, it's like The Little Mermaid. And then Melora says, well, how does, does everyone live happily ever after? And Dax gives her, her this really, like, pregnant look. But the problem is, is that the ending of those two things are completely different from each other. The Disney Little Mermaid, they do end up happily ever after. But the Hans Christian Andersen Little Mermaid, she literally commits suicide because the prince marry someone else so there's a those are two very different endings and so like if we're talking about the hans christian anderson ending like that look that dax gives her means something totally different than if we're talking about the disney one yeah so So i think that even though sorry i was gonna say i think dax is referring to the hans christian anderson totally but i'm also like why did you bring that up (laughs) what are you doing yeah so like someone like me that didn't know the difference like i was like yeah they were happy right (laughs) like but it is wild like i guess now knowing how that one ends of course she's gonna choose to stop these treatments (laughs) like what other choice do you have like if you're gonna be miserable you know i just want to make a guess maybe it's in there because Renee is one of the voices in the little I forgot that he possibly. Was. Yes. Yeah, he's yes. the chef. He's, he's the, the chef. chef. Yeah. So and he I sings actually too. I actually watched voice. it recently, the Disney version. Um And it my... was 1989, so it was just a yeah. few yeah. years before mm-hmm. this. Yeah. When I visited our friend Melissa in Chicago recently, um and our other friend Manu was over, we all watched the Little Mermaid together and I was really sad because Disney Plus took out the scene or like edited the scene where the like where the Ursula as a human character is marrying Eric and the priest is supposed to have a boner in the original version of the movie not supposed to be but someone drew like the in the original version of the movie the the priest marrying them has like a boner and they it's edited true. it out for Disney Plus it I, is very I true have it on VHS oh, that happened I- and there's a penis on the um the cover, which is edited out also. So I was very sad that they were like, I'm like, release the penis cut, please. <laughs> oh, I can't believe that, that we've managed to get to release the penis cut of The Little Mermaid on this episode. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, as it says at the really start of the podcast, our deep and irreverent thoughts on our favorite yeah. Star yes, Trek exactly. series. <laughs> Does anyone have anything else to say about the episode at large before we get into our regularly scheduled segments? Uh, let me. I don't. I've already talked so. way too much on this episode, so I'm <laughs> no, good. no, I don't no. Think that that's true at all. Um, yeah, Kira's basically not in this episode at all, is she? Um, she's in like the one scene where they're trying to like. Where they realize that the runabout's being stolen, right. but that's really about Cisco's it. Cisco's only in like two scenes. Yeah, he's like a plot yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, and O'Brien as well, I guess. Um, yeah, it's basically just Julian and, and Melora with a little bit of Dax, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then obviously you got the B plot for Quark. And yeah, Odo and Quark. 
All right. Well, I don't know about you folks, but we've we've been going for for a minute or two here. Yeah. So I'm I'm feeling a little bit parched. So uh I'm looking to to have my thirst quenched a bit. I don't know, maybe it's time for some Altair water from Altair 5. So uh we'll start we'll go uh Lazi, <clears throat> excuse me, Elise and then then end with uh with Tessa. So uh Lazi, who are you thirsting for this week on Deep Space 9? Look, I'm not proud of this, but if, <laughs> but if Julian was sat across the table charming me, I would be charmed. And he's um, very charming. He's very charming. There is a line when um, uh, the when they're um, giving her treatments, and she says, "My heart is pounding," and he responds. I'd like to think that's more to do with me than with the whatever random chemical. <laughs> and then she says, would that also explain why my backside is getting warm? And I'm very interested in what that means. I missed that line. <laughs> I completely missed that. Oh my I God. thought it meant that like her, like the base of her spine like was, I don't know. Why would I know that's that? Probably like, true. That's probably true. That's all I could like assume <laughs> about the treatment. But yeah, it seems like a really random symptom to bring up. I just yeah. think they're, they're into mid-air spanking. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love it. Anyway, yeah. Uh, is it Julian, Julian oh. is charming. <laughs> Jillian, as Jude Law says, is daddy. All right. So, <laughs> Elise, who are you thirsting for this week on Deep Space Nine? I I am thirsting for the Dabo girl that Quark brings in to entertain Fallot Cot. She has the most wonderful underboob I have ever seen <laughs> on a Star Trek, and I love her. You, We barely see her face. I, she kisses Fallot Cot at one point on the face i don't think it was on the mouth i don't remember again some issues with uh logistics there yeah Yeah. (laughs) spectacular under boob so yeah that's that um, was my thirst do you remember what quark says uh to um to caught about her he says ask her ask her about her double down betting strategy (laughs) i did not remember that i love it uh it was so good her outfit was just fabulous also. Tessa, what about you? So for me, it's definitely the Klingon chef. Klingon Artie I'm not going to lie. You can edit this out if it's too <laughs> racy, but... Oh, no. You um, can go all in. We're leave good. it in and double it. Um, <laughs> I definitely feel like he is like a daddy bear mm-hmm. who like, oh, totally. is super... Like, I mean, he wants to create romance in his in his restaurant he had he wants the ambiance of like the violin like i feel like he like i said he'd be 110 percent into any relationship he would definitely like want to wine and dine you and then he would just want you to top him in the bedroom like that's that's like what that character is to me and i think that's very attractive i would like to see a romance between him and melora also yeah exactly like, there's definitely some chemistry fun. there for sure yeah i, I think I just picture him, her bossing him around in the yeah. bedroom. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Also, you just have to what love about- being like held by like a big guy. Oh, like, yeah. Yeah, there's just something no, about totally. it. Yeah. No, I agree. Totally. What about you, Matt? Um, 
Yeah, I'm just going to co-sign Tessa's because that's all I'm thinking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> um, and I guess then we can I love into, it. to most Star Trek thing and I'll, I'll, we'll do their, I'll share mine and we'll do the reverse order. So we'll go Tessa, Elise, and then end with, uh, end with, with Lazi. Um, my most Star Trek thing of the episode is we have a Star Trek love story with the guest star where they break up again and it's this great love. They're transformed forever. And then we never hear about from either of them ever again. It's just like (laughs) two galactic ships passing in the night, having life-changing experiences and never talking again because it's episodic television. Tessa, what was the most Star Trek thing for you? Sorry, go ahead. Did ever any of you ever watch uh, Saved by the Bell? Ever? Okay. There's a mm-hmm. YouTube channel called Zach Morris's Trash. You can edit all this out. There's a there's a YouTube channel called Zach Morris's Trash, and it's hilarious because it's about how terrible of a person Zach Morris is. And they make fun <laughs> of the episodic. This is very dark, but they they make fun of the episodic television by ha- like every time there's a guest star that comes on, and like like you said, like there's something like life changing, or he interacts with them yeah. in a really shitty way or something. It's always like, and then we never fucking see them again. <laughs> I will admit to you for formally loving that. Oh, Zach Morris is a terrible person, but that's a oh, different totally. podcast. Although, for wait, sure. doesn't he become governor in the reboot? Which and, like, I'm still a terrible person. Yeah, I have to say, my recollection is they're all pretty terrible. Yeah, but Kelly yeah, is so adorable. Of... That's true. She I gets away Lisa with it. Was okay, wasn't Lisa fine? Oh, Lisa's I don't remember. Okay. Yeah, I'm very. I have to say, as soon as you said Zach Morris, in my head was there's no hope with dope. Like that's like (laughs) what came into my mind. So the most Star Trek thing for me, I I don't know if this is like really a TOS thing, but I think from like next gen onward, this like whole thing, this whole structure of having like an A storyline and a B storyline, and then they meet up at the end in a way that's kind of unexpected because I. I'm not going to lie. I'm not sure if I really remembered this episode super clearly from whenever I originally watched it, but I was actually yeah. kind of surprised when suddenly Quark <laughs> and, uh, and Dax and Melora were all on the same screen together. <laughs> like I was like, right. Oh, like this is how it interacts. So that would, is what I would say is one of the most Star Trek things. And it was so random. Cause it was literally just because, Wrong place, wrong time. We're like, yeah, yeah, Yeah. they just like walked past them and they were like, all right, well, they're seeing me like hold Quark up. I guess I got to get them involved. Yeah. Lazi, what about you? Um, Yeah, I'm going to take my lesson from my Dabo girl and I'm going to do a double down strategy. (laughs) This could have been a next gen episode. Like swap, swap Riker in for Bashir. Like there's nothing about this apart from the Klingon chef. Uh, the, and a little <laughs> bit of the B plot, but again, there's no reason for that to interact with the A, a plot that couldn't have been a next gen episode. It's the episode of the week. None of it ever comes up again. None of the characters really change because of it. Uh, we're given a little bit of a PSA um, in terms of the tone of, of the show. So I think, yeah, it, it's a very, very next gen Star Trek episode. Yeah. Elise? Um, I kind of have two. One of one is just a DS9 trope is having the I say bad guy, but as we've discussed, 
Is Fallot caught the bad guy? I'm not sure. I mean, he's bad for like holding these people up. Like, I don't appreciate that. But like in general, he's just frustrated and has been put down by the system. Um, having a wormhole escape plan is just like such a DS9 trope. Like, how is he had planning that a couple on times spending recently. that money? Like, where was he going? <laughs> was the Gamma Crod? Yeah, like, well, actually. So I I have thoughts about that because there was the episode where um the um Gerard Dax I think no so there was the episode where the um I'm like really what is the Frangi like head person why can't I think of what that Nagus the great Nagus sorry yes where the Nagus wants to have his successor named which is really funny because I'm watching Succession now finally um. And he basically, they at the end of that episode, they're like, oh, we'll go out into the Gamma Quadrant and because there's nothing there. So I'm like, maybe there are places where he can spend that latinum now <laughs> that maybe say, there weren't last the year. Cure currency in the Gamma Quadrant? Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. And um, as we spoke through most of this episode, and, uh, and I do agree with Tessa that it's not really an allegory as the Melora was literally in a wheelchair, but just... Star Trek loves using alien species to explain real world issues. And I'm I've been reading Hold on. I just want to get the actual name. I've been reading the the 50-year mission, um, volume one, the first 25 years by Edward Gross and Mark Mark A. Altman, which is basically like an oral history of the first 25 years of Star Trek. And one of the reasons why they did that so much in TOS is because NBC, who that's the channel that TOS was on, would not allow them to do episodes on real world issues. They really wanted just like science fiction and weird fantasy. And so by including alien species and having it in like this backdoor kind of way, they were like able to comment and have commentary on real world issues without actually saying like racism is bad or be nice you know be respectful to disabled people like there was it was it was kind of like a hidden meaning and the viewers understood it and the writers understood it but maybe the network executives it went over their heads a little bit because they weren't paying that much attention so I appreciate that for TOS, I feel like in the 90s and forward, you can kind of talk about real world stuff or you should should have been able to without having it be like alien species, etc. But that feels very Star Trek to me. Right. Right. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much, Lazi and, and Tessa, for joining us. Uh, just for, for what I think is like overall, like a pretty kind of average episode of star trek and and deep space nine we've had a really good thorough discussion on and and elise and i literally couldn't have done it without either of you so so thank you so much both of you for for joining thanks for having me on yeah yeah this has been a lot of fun sorry so um so professor charles xavier right um, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who is disabled? I love you, and, who is, and also an egotistical jerk. So there and you also go. Also, has the, the, the super crit uh, problem. Yeah. 
no um no it's um, been great to come on and i would definitely like recommend people watch uh the expanse or, and read the expanse it's um it's a fantastic use of uh of harder science fiction and deals with um a lot of the the fundamental physics of this stuff if not the social commentary well the social commentary in there as well in fact there's a well, lot of social commentary of the expanse uh-huh. I'm thinking logistics. That's up my alley. <laughs> it's very well, much I mean, about logistics. No. For sure. <laughs> I haven't read the books. Well, I've only seen the show. But well, and still, e- and even like talking about you know the the realities of the different gravity systems and like how that impacts like relationships. And it's like, oh, you can't meet my family because you can't go on Earth because you would be in immense pain or like like you know what I mean. So it's like there. Yeah, no, it's it's good. I. I've read up to the fifth book. I have the next three that I bought from a local bookseller last year to kind of support them. So I need to need to get on that. Need to finish reading the third Dune book though first before I go to any sci-fi. All right. And now after that TMI, Lazi, is there if folks want to find more of you on the internet, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mina Englishman. Enough comment on that name. <laughs> that name which i learned recently is not about being mean or nice it's about it's an account it's a math average. joke <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a math ah, joke okay yeah yeah <laughs> yeah the problem is i have to explain that and therefore <laughs> it was a joke I know, I've and I have, 12 years Lazi ago and i right? have been friends for three years and i only learned that this year <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, as we all know the jokes you have to explain are the best jokes yeah, no, def- <laughs> definitely, definitely. Tessa, what about you? Where can we find more of you on the internet? Where can't you find more of me on the internet? Um, <laughs> so you can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me. I have two podcasts right now. I have the Monkey Off My Backlog podcast. That's on Twitter at Monkey Backlog, where we basically discuss every week crossing things off of our pop culture lists really fun and my other podcast is nanny ogs book club that's on twitter at nanny's book club and that's where me and my friend nigel are reading through all 41 of terry pratchett's discworld novels so nice. yay that's it's super great, fun it's a great podcast i love it oh, great plug on the show <laughs> <laughs> and elise where can folks find more of you um, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Elise underscore Tendi, E-L-Y-S-E underscore T-E-N-D-I. And you, Matt? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd as well, as well at MattyHugh, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H. Twitter and Instagram at PodRace, P-O-D-W-R-A-I-T-H-S. You can also email us at PodRace at gmail.com. Please rate and review our podcast on the podcatching system of your choice. And thank you again to DJ Empirical for our interstellar theme song. Until next time, computer and program. Bye. Bye. I love your guys' sign-off. It's great. <laughs>